Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So the teens have been back, obviously, from university, and thank goodness they've gone now. Don't mean that in a mean way. They've been putting me in my place because obviously they, they don't get up, do they? They sort of lounge around all day. And so I've been doing this thing where I sort of say, oh, I've been up since 6.30. I've uh, done two loads of washing, done Pilates, had three work calls, written three scripts, blah, 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 blah. And they just say to me, and where would you like us to send your medal, mum? They are mean. We do deserve medals, don't you think? We do deserve a medal. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? So I do that with mine and then they they get up about three o'clock some of them who shall remain nameless and I say to them I've done this this and this booked this this and this sorted out this this and this and you're saying you're bored I mean for god's sake you're only bored because you've been in bed for so long and mine say to me stop capping 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 what's capping means lying so they when I say I've done this this and this they just say oh stop capping mum okay and where does that word come from because I don't understand teenage malarkey Oh, just teenage malarkey. Rubbish. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. And I'm Trish Halpin. If you're living in a hormonal hot house, feeling a bit overwhelmed and in need of some positive, uplifting and comforting guidance on how to lead a more magnificent midlife, then this is the show for you. We chat to celebrities and experts on all things midlife, from menopause and perimenopause to parenting teens, via fashion, beauty, wellness, nutrition, fitness careers, relationships, caring for elderly relatives and your finances. Yes, we are experts and famous guests all the questions you need answered to have a happier healthier and more harmonious second act welcome lovely midlifers here we are again firmly back in the swing of the things on the podcast although i do always sort of feel what the hell am i doing in front of a microphone broadcasting to thousands of women every time i start to record this (laughs) (laughs) but i am going to own it today as the teenagers say well i mean we are into season 11 lorraine it's been a long time no more imposter syndrome for you i will say uh but it's only a matter of time i'm thinking before we get our telly show maybe this is the year for our world tour what do you think (laughs) exactly can you imagine, though, Trisha, postcards from Midlife World Tour? Oh, God. We'd have those dressing room riders, you know, that list of stuff we must have. Yes. You know, J-Lo and her blue M&Ms. I think on mine, I would have uh, a dry robe, jam donuts, Keanu Reeves in a tuxedo. Can I say that? I don't know. Well, I don't know. <laughs> you can wish it. You can wish it. I can wish it. And on your dressing room rider, I think you'd have something like three cashmere vests, bar of caramac chocolate, Bottle of cider, apple cider vinegar, wouldn't you? Oh, gosh, you know me so well. Well, that is living the midlife dream right there, isn't it? The vests and the apple cider vinegar. Well, 
feel I have to take a moment to talk about the apple yes. cider vinegar. Can I bring it up again, Miss, on our podcast? Do, always, always, yeah. We have mentioned it before. Yeah. So we can mention it again. I think it's good. It's it's good to mention it again because it's so good for our tummies, isn't it? I mean, just putting it out there, I was the first to advocate for the apple cider vinegar on the show. Uh, but then, of course, we got the glucose goddess, Jessine Chopsey, on. And she talked about it endlessly, about how brilliant it was, helping glucose spikes. And it's a probiotic. What can you possibly add to that? Is there something to add? Well, I can add to that because I popped a little post on my Instagram about the three things that really helped me health-wise, one of my New Year, New You posts, and I said, buddy yoga obviously has helped me. <laughs> I hate to keep mentioning. Vitamin D, yes, loads of evidence around that, and my morning spoon of apple cider vinegar, or ACV as they call it. And it broke the internet, Trish. Oh, it <laughs> broke the internet. Oh, my goodness. I haven't had a bigger response to anything on Instagram since I said that I don't take the tea bag out of a cup of tea before I put the milk in. Oh, they all went oh funny dear. about that yeah, as well. Yeah. Anyway, I am going to answer apple cider vinegar questions here to end the discussion of it because it's obviously very useful. Well, I just assumed by now, because obviously everybody listens to this podcast, that they would know about apple cider vinegar. No, no, they do not. So for the record, and this is for me, and we are all different. God knows we are all different. So there's no hard and fast science for everybody. I take a spoon of apple cider vinegar in water just before having a late breakfast. And it's banished my all my glucose spikes, my afternoon slumps are gone. It's helped my bowels. I know you need to know about that, Trisha. I like to keep you informed once a week on that. Um, and it's really stopped the um, bloating. So mm. I can't take probiotics because, well, I explode. It's awful. There's a terrible reaction. <laughs> I've tried everyone. They don't work. Now, I don't know how it affects histamines, apple cider vinegar. One lady asked me on Instagram. I mean, I had over 110 questions about it on Instagram. Wow. Because you are now an expert because you take it once a day. Yes. <laughs> well, it's, exactly. It seemed to really intrigue people. So I'm going to refer you all to the Glucose Goddess book because it seems to be very interesting. It's really brilliant, the book. And also to Liz Earle's Wellbeing podcast because she knows a lot about apple cider vinegar. I've got some apple cider vinegar news too because I sent a bottle to my 80-year-old aunt. Hold the front page. Hold the front page. Oh, not your nun. My nun. And guess what? She said it's worked miracles on her tummy troubles. And she should know about miracles being a nun, shouldn't she? <laughs> I would say. But anyway, I'm glad we've got all that resolved because we can get on with the show at last. Everybody will be thinking, will they just get on with it? But anyway, our guest today may actually have something to add when it comes to health because it's Dr. Michael Mosley. He's a bit of a national institution national treasure even um because his radio telly newspaper columns and books they're just so good aren't they and he's coming on today to help us get the best night's sleep ever and just continually have good sleep which is what we want and lose weight at the same time and have more energy which sounds good he's like a miracle nun too isn't he <laughs> i stand on uh, one leg to brush my teeth thanks to dr michael mosley you know his do one thing uh, looking forward to that interview. It's going to be helpful. Can I ask him, Trish, because he is a doctor, about something else? As long as it's not your verrucas. No. Your thanatophobia. That was a word I'm trying to learn because you're always talking about death and fear of death. And I looked it up. There is a word for it, but I can't pronounce it. Is it that? No. Is it your varied allergies? No. This oh. makes me sound like I'm falling apart. <laughs> I tell you these things in confidence, young Trish. 
told you about my vesting confidence and <laughs> now the whole nation knows. Although I am waiting for M&S to ask me to design a range. That could be quite good, couldn't it? Yeah, forget about Kim Kardashian and Dolce & Gabbana. It's Trish and M&S. That's the fashion collaboration we're all waiting for, isn't it? No, actually, I'm in perfect health at the moment. I want to ask him about a little conundrum of mine, which we've discussed. It involves you. Oh, this is what we were talking about recently. You're still going yeah. on about jigsaws and crosswords. But I bet Michael's a jigsaw and a crosswords person, isn't he? You don't like that, do you? I can't let it go, Trish. Mm. I can't let it go. It's waking me up in the night. And um, we do discuss it often. It's me versus the dissectologists, as they're called, these puzzle um, people. And do you know what people who, who do crosswords are called? Probably something we can't pronounce. Gruciverbalists. A word we can't pronounce. Yes, you're very vexed, aren't you? Because the, the, the story is, I was telling you how lovely it was at Christmas. We had gazillions of people staying and we had a jigsaw for everybody to do. If you just need a little five minutes, go and do a jigsaw. And it's something actually I bond with my son over. He loves, he's always loved doing jigsaws. He's very good at them. And he bought me a lovely little Van Gogh one for Christmas. Just lovely. But you don't you don't like it, do you? No, it inf absolutely infuriates me because the world is divided into people who like puzzles mm -hmm. and people who hate puzzles. Or normal people, as I like to think of us. <laughs> I just want to know why I can't enjoy a jigsaw or do the wordle. I mean, you would literally trample over me, over my dead body to get to a thousand-word jigsaw. I would. thousand-piece jigsaw of Hampton Court or some such, wouldn't you? Okay, I've got an idea. What about if you had one of Keanu Reeves in a tuxedo? Would that do it for you? I had a cardboard cutout of him once. Your name? They bought me Marie Claire. You're evading. You're no, evading no. the answer. Back to jigsaws. Now, it's fine that I can't do it because we are all different. But I've got that thing in the back of my head that if I can't do a jigsaw or a Sudoku or any of that malarkey, then I'm not going to age as well um, as other people because it keeps you young, doesn't it? It stops you forgetting things. And I'm going to end up in yes. some kind of home neglecting to put my underwear on and not knowing my surname. And you're going to be swanning around perfectly dressed Solving Fermat's mathematical theorem or something. <laughs> it's really bugging me. All right. Okay. I'm going to be a good friend to you now and give you some, some information that hopefully will stop you worrying about this. Uh, courtesy of my friend, Dr. Richard Restack. Do you remember him? Clinical professor of neurology. I interviewed him for a, one of our How to Win sections a couple of seasons ago. Um, that always comes on at the end of our show, doesn't it? The How to Win section. Very helpful. It was all about improving your memory. He's got a new book, How to Prevent Dementia. But he says, and I think this is useful for you, because if you find something really boring and you dislike it, like all the puzzly stuff, so although it's supposed to be good for you, if you don't like it, it won't benefit you. The dislike outweighs any benefit. So there you are. And instead, he says, you need to identify another magnificent passion. Keanu Reeves. Quote marks, that's what he calls them. <laughs> Magnificent passion. Here's <laughs> his literature, and he just records reading fiction, which you do a lot of, Lorraine. I do. It's yeah. just as helpful. So don't worry oh. about jigsaws. Can we just say end of now? Done. Jigsaws. No more. You're drawing a line under the puzzle <laughs> conundrum for me, aren't you? I've got my pen in my hand. I'm literally doing it. Yes. Thank God for that then. Okay. So I won't check that with Dr. Mosley. I know that I can just. Read a bit of a book. Yeah. Drop back into my Jilly Cooper, and that's just yeah. as good for me as your Hampton Court Van Gogh, whatever those puzzle, boring old puzzle things you'll be doing. Anyway, I am looking forward to our chat with him because once we've done that, we're going to turn agony, aunt, aren't we? We do this once a season, sometimes more than once a season. 
And this time we're going to solve a couple of family dilemmas, which uh, seem to be really bothering midlife women at the moment. Just a reminder, we do pop top line notes, not detailed information, but anything, any links, that sort of thing. We do pop them on our Facebook group once a week with the information about the episode. So you just have to search up the name of the guest and the post should pop up because it can be a bit confusing trying to find things on Facebook if they don't automatically come up in your feed. But persevere, ladies. It's like a thousand word jigsaw puzzle, Facebook, (laughs) quite frankly. (laughs) You can also uh, join the private Facebook group or follow Postcards from Midlife on Instagram. And we're going to be putting news there of our mini magazine, which we do on Substack. It's called Postcards from Lorraine and Trish. Um, We've got quite a few exciting things coming up on that. Uh, We do it every other week. And we've also got some plans to meet you in person this spring. How did you sleep last night? We're hoping you're going to say like a log. But given that the NHS reports one in three people in the UK battle insomnia, the chances are you either struggle to get to sleep, woke up at 3am in a pool of perimenopausal sweat, spent hours awake in a deluge of anxiety, or perhaps it was a snoring partner keeping you up half the night. Well, we've all been there and we all know what a detrimental effect poor sleep can have on every aspect of our lives. But fear not, today's special guest, Dr. Michael Mosley, might just be the man of your dreams, quite literally, because he has written Four Weeks to Better Sleep, a life-changing plan for deep sleep, improved brain function and feeling great. Most of us know Michael from his TV work on shows such as Trust Me, I'm a Doctor and The Secrets of Your Big Shop, as well as his brilliant BBC podcast, Just One Thing, in which he investigates the science behind the quick everyday hacks that can really make a difference to our brains and bodies from doing a plank to lower blood pressure, to drinking a cup of green tea to boost your brain power, and why walking backwards could be the answer to back pain. And then, of course, there are his groundbreaking diets, the 5-2 and Fast 800, both of which he devised after his own weight struggles and health issues that led to a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, which he managed to reverse with these eating plans. Married to the GP, Dr. Claire Bailey, with whom he has four children, he says his work is inspired by understanding what the human body does, how it does it, and the interactions between the body and the brain. He joins us today to reveal his sleep master plan and explain the all-important link between a good night's sleep and the ability to lose weight more easily. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Michael. Brilliant to be here. Great. Now, we should really start by asking you how you slept last night. And uh, also one of our favourite questions, what did you have for breakfast? I slept pretty well last night. I normally wake up at about sort of three in the morning, which I duly did, um, to go to the loo. And then I sort of um, fell back asleep again and um, got up about seven this morning. And I had kippers and tomatoes for breakfast. Right. So... You, Michael, are often your own guinea pig, aren't you, for all your own medical research. 5-2 diet, fast 800. Um, This all came after your diabetes diagnosis. And in your new book, you talk about your intermittent insomnia, which you said you suffered for years, and it caused real despair, as insomnia can. And you wanted to find out why and what you could do about it. So tell us briefly then, before we dive into the deepness of it, what was causing it? what did you do to fix it? Absolutely. I'm not entirely sure. It sort of came on in my 40s. Um, We started having children in our 30s, and typically that tends to trigger insomnia, as any parent will know. Um, We have four kids, and uh, they say it takes about two to three years, maybe five years to recover from the birth of a child. 
uh, when it comes to sleep. So um, young parents often really struggle with their sleep, but I don't particularly remember it then. I think it came on really in my late 40s when I started to get more responsibility at work. I was getting older, all sorts of things. And I started to wake up at three in the morning and um, I found it difficult to get back to sleep. And indeed, I went to some big meeting at BBC and I said, who else in here has this problem? And pretty well everyone stepped their hands up. So I think it is really, really common. There are lots of different forms of insomnia, but one of the commonest is the 3 a.m. wakening. And indeed, I looked on Google Trends. Search for the term insomnia. When would you guess? 3 a.m. 3 a.m. Absolutely. That is peak time. <laughs> uh, it's not across the year. It's not across anything particular. It is 3 a.m. when we're all kind of going on the internet and looking for insomnia, which obviously in itself is incredibly self-defeating. We should probably jump straight to midlife. I mean, we are going to find out some of your answers to what to do about waking up at 3am um, and having anxiety later on. But we wanted to start with midlife women, because of course, on top of all of that, we have perimenopause hormonal meltdown to deal with as well. And that causes no end of problems for sleep. Is there anything specific that these women should be thinking about or doing? Well, you're absolutely right. And my wife, Claire, um, who's a GP, she got it pretty bad. And um, I also, uh, by association, experienced it because she would get really hot and really cold in the middle of the night. And she would be throwing the duvet on or pulling it on again. And uh, I have to say, it gave her terrible brain fog as well. Um, she was working as GP. She was really struggling. But her sleep was terrible. In her case, uh, she went on hormone replacement therapy. And that's really what made all the difference to her. Yeah, it did to us, yeah. And one of the things that drives, you know, the problems is this sudden drop in estrogen and progesterone. And, you know, it's um, the hormonal changes. And they also, in some people also, uh, you get a redistribution of fat so that people put on weight. And sometimes that weight goes to the tummy and to the neck. And that means that um, you start snoring. And uh, that is much more common after the menopause, after menopause in women. And so when it comes to hot, cold flushes, all I can say is if you are suitable, then hormone replacement therapy is probably your best bet. And Claire found it absolutely life changing. And um, she would certainly swear by it. And there's lots of different forms of HRT these days. So do find out. When it comes to the weight gain, what I now advise people is to try and increase their protein. Because one of the things that happens uh, when you are perimenopausal, going through menopause, or indeed just simply getting older, is that your body's ability to digest, break down protein diminishes. You become less efficient in it. And protein is probably the primary driver of hunger. It is the most important macronutrient when it comes to hunger. If you're not getting enough, that's because your body needs it for your immune system, all sorts of things. So if you're not getting enough, then your body will go crazy. Basically, your brain's going, give me more of that stuff. And you will eat and eat and eat until you hit the protein need. This has been demonstrated many times. Um, so that's why, you know, I'm eating uh, capers for breakfast because they're a fantastic source of protein, often have eggs and at lunch. We might have a bit of fish or a bit of tofu or if you are a vegetarian, there's also lentils and things like that. And again, in the evening, a bit of meat, fish. Um, so you need to up your protein to about, you know, 70 to 80 grams a day and you need to spread it throughout the day. So ideally, you know, protein for breakfast, lunch and dinner, not exactly the same amounts, but. That would seem to be a very effective way. And there's a big clinical trial going on in Sydney at the moment, looking at the impact that has on weight gain in middle age, particularly for women. And they think that just a few percent could make a big difference. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because one of the things, well, it was surprising to learn uh, from your book is the 
massive impact lack of sleep has on the gut microbiome. We know about the the second brain, uh, as it's called, and it really increases the risk of chronic conditions, doesn't it? Inflammation. So you're at more of a risk for obesity, type 2 diabetes and dementia, aren't you? Because this microbiome in your gut is affected by your lack of sleep. Tell us a bit more about that. The lack of sleep does lots of things, pretty well every organ in your body. But as you say, it's kind of interesting about the microbiome. The other thing I'd say is if you've had a bad night's sleep, people on average eat 200 calories more. So if you're sleeping badly, then you're probably putting on weight. Uh, because what you really crave is sugary, carby things the next morning. So you put on weight and then that makes your sleeping worse. So you're in a horrible, vicious circle. But at the same time, um, your microbiome is beginning to deteriorate. And we know that one of the best measures of the quality of a microbiome is what's called diversity. Um, how diverse is it down there in your gut? You've got, you know, 100 trillion microbes, a thousand different species. And how do you ensure that the kind of the good ones are flourishing and doing all the stuff they should do? And uh, that is strongly linked to getting a decent night's sleep, because if you don't, then you get a disrupted microbiome, you put on weight and all the other ghastly things that go with it. That said, I would say there is perhaps sometimes too much pressure on people when we start telling them about all the ghastly things that happen to them if they don't get a good night's sleep and then they get terrified and then they sleep in worse. Yes, psychologically fear of it now. So what I would say is a single night's sleep is, isn't going to kill you. But obviously, if you're persistent lack of sleep, you're feeling tired, knackered all the time during the day, then that's kind of when you really probably need to do something about it. But breaking the cycle is quite difficult, isn't it? Because you are exhausted. You know you should be exercising to lose weight, but you haven't got the energy to do it. Is there one thing they can do to start breaking the cycle? Um, absolutely. I'd say buy my book. Yeah. <laughs> it is very good. We can vouch for that. That is exactly uh, what it's aimed at, basically helping people get on a virtuous cycle. And that's why it is extremely detailed and based on the latest science, because otherwise it is hard to do it by yourself. It is really tough. And you go to the NHS, whatever, you just get generalised waffle. Uh, they give you some decent advice, but it's always the same, basically. Keep your room cool. Don't have your phones by the bed. And yes, they are a good idea, but in and of themselves, they're extremely unlikely to make a significant difference if you have insomnia and if you're on that vicious cycle. Take it back then. So we're Gen X. Everyone told us Margaret Thatcher could have four hours sleep. <laughs> what the hell are you lot doing trying to have eight hours sleep, for God's sake, especially women? What is the right amount? Can you explain the stages of sleep, what we're going through? And that kind of question that gets asked again and again, what's the right amount? I mean, I know it's probably quite bespoke, but just tell our listeners what happens when they go off to the land of Nod. I mean, the thing I'd say about Margaret Thatcher is she almost certainly had snoozes in the afternoon. We know that. And also a napper, a napper. And she also obviously, um, unfortunately, developed dementia quite early. So neither of which are great adverts for sleep deprivation uh, or trying to hold your sleep down. So the various stages of sleep. First of all, you get in bed. Hopefully you start to drift off. You're in stage one. Then you're going into deeper sleep, stage two. And then you go into deep sleep. And during deep sleep, uh, which occupies maybe 15 to 20 percent of the night, uh, basically, that's when you're getting a lot of the refreshment, when your memories are being sorted out and stuff like that. And then periodically throughout the night, you get this weird thing called REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. And if you are looking at your partner at that moment, they're completely still because all your muscles are frozen. Uh, but their eyelids will be flicking madly to and fro. And it's during that period when typically we're having our most vivid dreams. 
And that also seems to be incredibly important for consolidating our memories. And some people think the reason why you are sort of frozen uh, during REM sleep is because you're having all these vivid dreams and it's to stop you thrashing around and hurting yourself or hurting someone else. So those are the most important stages of sleep. And broadly, the rule seems to be, you know, eight hours. But it's quite difficult unless you've got a sleep tracker or something like that to know how much of the night you're actually sleeping for. Because if you go to bed at 11, you get up at seven, but you're awake for sort of three hours in the night, then that's not great. So there's a concept I go to in the book called sleep efficiency. How much of the time you spend in bed are you asleep for? And ideally, it should be about 90%. So nobody sleeps throughout the night. Everybody kind of drifts up and down. I see it as a bit like a sort of porpoise who goes down, you know, comes up to the surface, goes down and things like that. We, we go through these 90 minute cycles where we go deep, we go shallow, we go deep, we go shallow. You should be aiming for about 90% sleep efficiency, ideally. And I'll come into why that's important later. But in terms of the actual hours, it's a good rule of thumb being in bed for about eight hours, hoping that you're sleeping for at least seven of those. And the way you can tell if you're not getting enough is you feel tired in the day. It's as simple as that. Do you feel knackered in the day? Do you wake up feeling dreadful? Do you fall asleep in front of the television? I've seen somebody asleep at the wheel uh, when they were in the car and they had sort of leant forward and obviously got to sleep and people were honking their horns. Uh, do you like my dad? He also used to sleep. The cinema, he was asleep. The theatre, if you went there, he was asleep. Uh, so he was constantly knackered. If you're one of those, you're not getting enough sleep. And there's actually a test you can do. Uh, you go to bed in the middle of the afternoon, sometime kind of quiet, you put your mask on or whatever and you set your alarm for 15 minutes time and then you close your eyes and the question is do you go asleep within that time if you fall asleep within 15 minutes then that would probably suggest you're sleep deprived if you set your alarm for 10 minutes and you fall asleep and the alarm goes off then you're probably pretty seriously sleep deprived so you shouldn't be falling asleep quickly in the middle of the afternoon and does it change as we age then as we get because my parents, they, they don't really sleep very much. No, um, clearly when you're a baby, you sleep a lot. When you're a teenager, you should be getting about nine hours. When you're an adult, it's somewhere between seven and eight. When I say nine hours sleep, I really mean in bed, not sleep, because you know that's much harder to measure. And when you get older, you typically sleep less. It's not that you spend less time in bed. You actually spend more time awake. Your sleep is shallower. And it's not because you don't need it. It's just because you're not getting it. It's because your brain is um, no longer as efficient, if you like, putting you to sleep. So older adults need it just as much as younger ones, arguably more, because there's another weird thing that goes on in the middle of the night when you're in deep sleep. Uh, these systems in these channels in the brain called the lymphatic system, they open up and they kind of wash away all the junk that's accumulated in your brain uh, during the day. It's kind of like a laundromat service up there. And if that doesn't happen, then that puts you at much greater risk of things like dementia. And deep sleep becomes harder to achieve when you get older. So that could be one of the reasons why poor sleep is strongly linked with dementia and loss of memory and things like that. And you mentioned teenagers. We've got teenagers. A lot of our listeners will have um, children and teenagers and older teenagers. And, oh, my goodness, they, they complain about being tired all the time, yet their sleep is terrible. You know, they spend all day in bed. They don't, why, why don't they... <laughs> listen to us, Michael. What, what is it about teenagers that, I don't know, they don't seem to want to access the information that actually really would help them with sleep. And then they complain about it. It drives me nuts. Yes. No, I mean, obviously, they don't want to get any information from their parents. They probably get it from TikTok or somewhere else instead. 
the thing about teenagers is that when you become a teenager, you become time shifted. So typically when we're young, uh, we are, are all larks. We go to bed really early, we get up fairly early, and that happens to us also as we get older. But when you're a teenager, you shift by about two or three hours. So whereas typically you might have gone to bed at about nine o'clock, now you're going to bed at midnight. That's what your brain's telling you to do. And there is an evolutionary reason for this. And that is, we were all obviously part of a tribe once upon a time on the plains of Africa, and our strength came from being part of the tribe. Now you need some people to be awake in the middle of the night. And those were the teenagers, almost certainly. It also offered them the opportunity to get together, form groups, because at some point they have to go out and do their own thing. And this is also a explanation as to why teenagers become horrible and repellent and spotty and annoying, because actually it's part of nature's way of saying, leave, go. You need them to be really cute when they're young, so you protect them, but you need them to leave the tribe and go off and do their own thing. And so they become repellent, and so you drive them out. That's what the anthropologists say. And uh, the sleep cycle is part of that. So there's part of me really feel sorry for them because they still have to get up at seven in the morning, which for us would be the equivalent of getting up at four in the morning. You have to be tolerant, but you probably also have to uh, discuss with them uh, removing things like the phone and have access to social media or just switch everything off at 11 o'clock at night or something like that because... Otherwise, you know, a typical teenager is going to be up watching, you know, it's going to be by the bed. If it's by the bed, you just grab it. Yes. Yeah. You might just have to switch everything off in the house. And uh, that would be a good rule for you as well. But it's all about getting them in the habit, unfortunately. And until they change the hours at which schools open, uh, we're going to have a lot of grumpy teenagers. They have in America. They've to some states, they do get them in a bit later. Now, should we talk about sleep complaints? Uh, you mentioned snoring before. Now, this comes up again and again. We have a private Facebook group. I think some of the women are going to quite close to suffocating the person next to them, snoring with a pillow. <laughs> How do we... You've mentioned weight because... And, and actually, that was on um, your TV program, the, the, the weight and the, the neck, the size of the neck. What, what other things contribute to snoring? And how can we start looking at curing it as well or, or alleviating it slightly? So it's not just men that snore. Uh, indeed, I think a British woman holds a record, which I think was 120 decibels, which is the sound of a plane taking off. Oh. But it is more <laughs> typical in men. And it is strongly linked to weight gain. And as I said, uh, it's the size of the neck. And there's also a strong genetic component to it. If your mother snored, your father snored, it's much more likely you will snore. Uh, my father snored. I used to snore incredibly loudly. Um, until I lost, um, you know, I lost about 10 kilos on the 5-2 diet, and then I just stopped. But when I put the weight on, I start to snore again, and Claire hits me and goes, Oi, you know, you're snoring again. Do something about it. Do we wake them up? Is that the thing? We just give them a good shake and say, come on, wake up. <laughs> Possibly, yes. And the other thing to listen out for is sleep apnea. There's long pauses in between, and that means sleep apnea, that means they're not getting enough oxygen to their brain. And that is something you might want to record it and uh, play it back to them or indeed persuade them to go and see a GP because that's quite serious. And uh, some estimates of 10 million people have sleep apnea uh, in the UK and less than half a million actually diagnosed or treated. Uh, when it comes to snoring, uh, the options really are earplugs, sleep divorce, where you go sleep in another room. Uh, getting them to lie on their side makes a huge difference. Um, so that could be the tennis ball sewn into the pyjamas, or there are devices now which can... <laughs> tennis ball sewn into Yeah, absolutely. So when they roll on their back, they go, oh, that's uncomfortable. It just wakes them up and they roll on their side again. So most people snore when they're flat on the back. 
And that's also when sleep apnea is at its worst. Interesting. And there are sort of, um, as I said, also neck devices, which look a bit like a dog collar, which give you a little shock uh, when you start to snore, it detects them. Like, and they chalk. Uh, so uh, that is an option, a gift, you know, for their birthday. And beyond that, you're looking at things like math guards uh, and conceivably um, CPAP machines, these are oxygen machines, if they have sleep apnea. But that's kind of further down the line. But the number one thing would be weight loss and being sympathetic because it's not always about weight, but um, weight loss almost always improves it. But it's also about alcohol, isn't it? Because my husband isn't overweight, but he smells when he drinks. And so we, we do a bit of sleep divorce then. That's, that's <laughs> agreement. But it does. It makes because it, I think you said it relaxes the back of the throat. Is that right? And then makes you snore. 100%. <clears throat> a lot of people use alcohol to um, um, get to sleep. It helps you get sleep, but unfortunately, it also relaxes everything in the way that means you snore more and your sleep is likely to be more disrupted. So you mentioned the uh, waking at 3 a.m. to anxious thoughts and everything whirling around your mind. How do you break that cycle, the 3 a.m., you know, fear of everything going on in life? Various ways. One way is to have a worry 20 minutes before you go to bed. So about an hour before you go to bed, you get out your notebook and you write down all the things you're worried about or the things you're likely to wake up at three in the morning thinking about and just have a good old worry about them. Think about them, have your solutions, have your problems, you know, mull about them. But do so about an hour before you go to bed. That means you're less likely to wake at three in the morning and worry about it. Uh, if you are awake at three in the morning, uh, I do a sort of a form of breathing exercise called four, two, four. So I breathe in through my nose to count of four, hold it for two, and then out through my mouth to count of four. And you do this for a minute or so, and you kind of count your breaths. And this is a really good way of slowing your heart, calming you. And I often find that does the trick. Worth practicing during the day or any time you're stressed. Otherwise, you might struggle to remember what I've just told you when it's three in the morning. And another rule is if you can't go to sleep at three and it's been 15 or 20 minutes or you know it feels like you're not going to sleep then just get out of bed find a sort of warm quiet place listen to some music read a really dull book basically wait until uh you're feeling a bit tired and go back to bed and the theory behind this is a form of behavioral therapy which essentially says you need to teach your brain to associate bed with sleep and sex and nothing else so that is the single principle if you like so if you're lying in bed worrying, then you're teaching your brain that bed is something to be afraid of. Bed is somewhere where you're going to worry about stuff. And similarly, if you're looking at all your social media, watching telly, you're teaching your brain, ooh, bed is where you get lots of stimulation. Uh, and you actually don't want any of that. You basically want you know bed to be quite boring and the place where you fall asleep. So if you're not falling asleep at three in the morning, then uh, get up, find something dull to do, wait until you're feeling tired go back to bed. And the same is true if you get to bed at 11, you can't go to sleep. Go and find something dull to do uh, and then go back to bed when you start feeling tired. Right, now on to a tricky one, a funny one, personal to me as well, but you do mention your wife Claire going through this as well. Parasomnia. So this is kind of when you feel like something's happening to you in the night. I wrote a piece um, about... I thought someone had come into my room and climbed on top and I could, I could feel hands and, you know, I really thought I was about to be attacked. And the other thing that happens to me, which is family folklore now, if I'm woken in that deep sleep and all the kids will tell, I've got four kids as well, and each one has a story of when we tried to wake mum in a deep sleep to tell her something, I will sit up screaming at the top of my voice. <laughs> They've learned, have they? Yep. So no one comes to me, they make up dad now. 
this parasomnia has come up on our Facebook group and people have written about it. What What's happening and how can you prevent it? Because it is really terrifying. It is. And as you say, uh, my wife, Claire, um, also suffers from it. Her thing is linked, again, sort of to stress. She but expresses it in a different way. So, for example, um, she will look under our bed for patients. She worries that patients have gone missing. And so she turns the lights on. She shakes me. Sometimes she climbs over me. And she says, we've got to look. And we look in the cupboards. We look by the curtains. We look under the bed. And at some point or other, she will acknowledge there are no patients there. And uh, she goes quietly to bed and goes to sleep. Uh, she also sometimes sees things a bit like you. Uh, I think it's shapes and lights. You know, it's something about the curtains. It's very real at the time. And she thinks it's ghosts. You know, it's kind of she sees ghosts quite often. So this is there seems to be a genetic component to it. And it's also there's a sort of delayed wake cycle. So you are continuing to have dreams, but you appear to be awake. So for you, you're kind of still in the grips of a dream. The dream has a reality, you know, whatever was going on in your head. And so there's a disconnect going on. Typically, people, they have dreams, they wake up, they know they're awake. But what parasomniacs, it's not like that. And that's kind of also embraces sleepwalkers, sleep talkers, all sorts of things. What do we do then? Well, I think humour them. Um, so with Claire, I'd give up trying to argue or do anything like that. And if they're children, then one of the ways of dealing it is to anticipate. Normally, they will start to sleepwalk, sleepwalk, whatever they're going to do in a fairly predictable way. So what you try and do is wake them up about 20 minutes before they start doing it. And that kind of disrupts the cycle. Uh, with adults, that's trickier. I have no solution for it apart from... Uh, just uh, going, hey ho, that's kind of what happens. Well, it's stress as well. I think I found writing, like that worry thing, writing a lot of stuff down before I went to bed reduced the number of peculiar happenings in the night. Excellent. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Now, with the book, Four Weeks of Better Sleep, so we've talked about quite a lot of the sort of principles and ideas behind why we don't sleep. And that's kind of how the book is structured, isn't it? You give a lot of the science, a lot of what's going on, and then you put together a, a really specific four-week plan, which is which is really amazing and brings it all together. Do you want to just talk us through the key principles? Because we haven't touched on things like sleep restriction, for example, how does it build from week to week? Sure. So the first thing is really to establish what sort of sleep problem you have. Do you have insomnia? Do you have onset insomnia, which means you find it difficult to go to sleep? Do you have difficulty because you wake up at three in the morning? Or do you wake up much earlier than you want to do? And then there is, are you a snorer? Do you have sleep apnea? And each of these, in a way, uh, has to be treated differently. And then there is also people who have slightly weird body clocks. So the first thing is to fill in a detailed sleep diary, which I include. So this is kind of when I wake up, this is when I go to sleep, this is what seems to be the problem. And if you have a partner, do get them to talk about your snoring or your apnea or whatever it might be. After that, it is about, first of all, establishing a routine. Um, so you go to bed at the same time every night, wake up at the same time, and that's seven days a week because every sleep expert I ever spoke to said that's what you need to do. You need to establish a routine, particularly the time you wake up in the morning. Then what you need to do is you need to measure your sleep efficiency. You use your first week of sleep diary to work that out. You know, how much of my night am I actually spending asleep? Now, you can kind of estimate it without a tracker, but sleep trackers really help because they do give you detailed information um, for that. So I was skeptical about them, but you can buy them for a decent price now. And they are a pretty good way of telling you, you know, and giving a measure of your sleep efficiency. 
then you kind of might want to start thinking about um, things like uh, the recipes, which are included as part of the book, uh, which Claire has produced, because sleep is also linked with the poor diet. And there's a lot of evidence, Mediterranean-style diet. I go into the foods which help you go to sleep and also when you should eat them, because one of my rules is try not to eat within three hours of bed. And then um, you might consider sleep restriction therapy, which you mentioned. And the idea, paradoxically, there is that you actually cut out the amount of time you spend in bed. So if you're in going to bed at the moment for, you know, 11, get up at seven, you're there for eight hours, but you're only asleep for six hours, then what I want you to do is to go to bed for six hours. So that would mean going to bed at 11, but getting up at five. And you do that for a week or so. And the idea behind this is you're retraining your brain to associate bed with sleep. So you get so tired that your sleep efficiency shoots up. You're in bed for less time, in this case, six hours but you're probably spending 90% of that time asleep. And then once you've done that, then you gradually add to it 15 or 20 minutes, say the next week. And this is the best proven way of uh, curing insomnia. Better than drugs, better than anything else. And it's not really talked about. I go into it in some detail how to do it safely, but it's part of something called CBTI, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. Now you can go and see a therapist who might help you with this, or you can do it via the program in the book. Because what you need is somebody who's trained in CBTI if you kind of want to do it this way. There's a lot of other detail in the book about light and things like that. But those are the sort of elements you like. And as I said before, at the heart of it, it is retraining your brain to associate bed with sleep. That is the key to getting good night's sleep. Can I ask about cold? Because I'm a cold water swimmer. And I know you that's one of my favorite things watching your stuff on cold waters it's it's that has revolutionized my sleep that really did make a huge difference to me particularly in midlife alongside hrt what are your thoughts around temperature in the bedroom because i have an ongoing <laughs> war with my husband over this he's like it's freezing and i can't sleep unless it is <laughs> <laughs> how funny because that's the exact reverse to what most arguments most arguments over the thermostat uh, the bloke wanting to push it down to save some money and the woman going, I'm cold. And indeed, the studies suggest that women uh, do experience the cold as painful, about three degrees warmer than men. But I suspect because you become a cold water swimmer, you're cold adapted. And we know that when you reduce the temperature in the house by about two degrees, then that leads to the production of brown fat. And brown fat is the good stuff. It burns calories. Uh, there is some evidence it reduces your blood sugars and it may indeed also help you sleep better. So I think that's probably the mechanism by which what you're doing is helping. So I have cold showers in the morning. And again, uh, they have helped with my sleep. But um, I recently did a podcast series for BBC Sound, which is still there, called Cold Therapy. And part of that was looking at cold in the bedroom. And without a doubt, yes, reducing the temperature in the bedroom, as long as you've got a decent duvet, is associated with better sleep. The, when it goes above 20 degrees in the bedroom, people tend to sleep worse. You don't want to get cold and shivery, but equally, one of the things that triggers sleep, the two things that really trigger sleep, well, three things. Uh, one of them is how long has it been since you were asleep, the buildup of sleep drive. The second is the time of day. So that's your chronobiology. And the third thing is the temperature. So the, it's a drop in your core body temperature is kind of what puts you to sleep. So one of the things that people also get advised is perhaps to have a warm shower about an hour before bed and then you get out and then you cool down. And as you cool down, basically that drops your core temperature. But being in a cold room will do the same thing. Your core body temperature fluctuates throughout the day. It starts to sink about 10 o'clock at night. 
and it should be at the bottom about four in the morning when you are in your deepest sleep. So I had myself tested. It turned out mine isn't at four in the morning. It's one in the morning. So I've got to work on that because that explains why I feel really sleepy quite early in the evening and then I'm bright and jumpy at three in the morning. That's because my body is saying to me, hey, it's time to get up, time to party. And the rest of me is going, no, I want to go back to sleep. Dealing with that is mainly about working with light, light therapy and things like that. So that's I can kind of go into that because the light is a very, very powerful way of resetting your body clock. And do you think then if we can say on this podcast, because insomnia is, is so debilitating and upsetting for people and often they've had it from a very young age that you can cure it. Absolutely. I mean, clearly uh, it's going to work better for some people than others, but there is really good research, really good evidence in the book. Even if you're not totally cured, you should get better. You should be sleeping better by the time you put these things uh, into operation. With uh, sleep restriction therapy, the cure rates are somewhere between 70 and 80%. So it's not 100%. Oh, wow. But it's very high. Unfortunately, drugs don't do it. Drugs just cover over the problem. Yeah, I was going to ask about sleeping pills. They Uh, don't really. It's like antidepressants instead of HRT, isn't it? It's just not going to go anywhere near where what you need, is it? No, and you become tolerant to them. Uh, over time and you're not really addressing the fundamental problem some people do benefit from melatonin but in the uk you can't get melatonin you can in the states and places like that in supermarkets but that has to be handled with some care because it is probably for people who are uh, whose chronobiology is a bit disturbed but um, i think if nothing else if you read a book then you'll learn an awful lot about sleep so there is lots of hope is what we're saying and there is lots of advice it'll take a little bit of work but the advice is all there in the book and we are very lucky we have a copy to give away as a competition prize on our facebook group as well so thank you so much michael for coming on the show for Super sharing helpful. your knowledge thank you could i also briefly mention that claire and i I will be doing a tour of the UK in February. If you look, Michael Mosley tour, uh, and I will be talking about all things sleep as well as weight loss and lots of other things. Claire will be cooking live on the show, and um, we will be there to answer lots of questions, both before, during, and after. Brilliant, wonderful. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here we are again at our How to Win section of the podcast. Um, And this week, it's the turn of our agony answer. Trish and I are going to answer two questions based on our millions of years experience in women's magazines and all the interviews we've done and all the experts we have interviewed. And also, we're going to bring in Marion and Millie, our rather obstreperous agony aunt alter egos. You can take or leave their advice. Tell us about Marion and Millie, Trish. Well, they kind of um, say what you're really thinking, I think, is the thing. (laughs) Millie is Millie Von Tant. She's a little bit, uh, you're kind of stuff the patriarchy, 
feminist ranter. And Marion is my passive, aggressive, perfectionist. Yes, just generally annoying Grumpy. person. Grumpy old mare. Yeah, just giving a different perspective. So I'm going to kick off. You're going to answer first. What have we got in the post bag? This one is 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 sad. It's, it's complex. Sad, okay, it, this one. We were both sad when we read this, weren't we? When we got this, yeah. Starts off heartbroken. I had such a lovely relationship with my children. It was us against the world since they were seven and five when I became a single parent. Fast forward, and they are twenty two and twenty. They have moved out to live with their father because I wanted them to be working. And if they were not working, they should have been actively looking for a job or studying. And I wouldn't allow them to sit on the Xbox all day. So they moved out in a straw. I'm apparently unreasonable, full of bad vibes, and now they barely visit me. I sent them a message this week to say I was unwell and I got back a hope you are okay text and nothing else. Feeling really sorry for myself because I gave them my life. And now I feel as if I'm the villain and their father is the cool, non-moany one. Oh, where do you want to start with that one, Lorraine? A lot to unpack there. So I'm just going to say I do feel very sorry for you because it is very sad. This huge change from being us against the world. You can't be us against the world at 20 and 22 because they are individuating, as the therapists say. They are really separate from you. So it's not you against the world anymore. So got to get that into your head, I think. But you do need to keep that connection because we know those connections are really, really important. And their brains really aren't set developmental-wise until they're 25 anyway. So they're still learning about themselves. I would say good to have a break. But you, as a mum, might need to start unpacking why this is so upsetting for you. So to take it from your point of view rather than from what they're doing and what their dad's doing. And let let me tell you, they'll get bored of dad as well and his permissiveness <laughs> at some point. So, But that's largely irrelevant, I think, to what you should be thinking. They aren't ever going to be grateful teenagers because that's not why we have children. So again, put that to one side if you're going to expect any kind of gratitude. You simply aren't and you're not alone in that. That is all parents and children. I'm a bit worried about the anger around it and sending it what I would possibly call, it may not have felt like that at the time, but a passive-aggressive text about not feeling, you know, well, waiting for them to come back. Are you thinking maybe they love him more than me? I'm going to test that. I'm sort of trying to ask that question because anger often masks fear, doesn't it? And it's a very illogical thing to ask young people because they can't possibly answer that. And you are sort of responsible for your own happiness as well. I would say can't bear that I'm going to say this out loud, that maybe you start something like the gratitude journal that we've mentioned before, where you write down what really is making you happy, what you're really grateful for. You're grateful that they're happy, healthy children. And the way they look after themselves during the day and what they do during the day at this age is not really any concern of yours. So if they are on the Xbox all day, unfortunately, they're on the Xbox all day. You can't change that. You're not in charge of that. But I think overall, we know all behavior is communication and we know that you are communicating in a way that you're asking things underneath what's on top of it, which is really confusing for a young brain. So I would say put yourself into their shoes, try and see the whole picture, not just your picture, and try and repair it gradually by keeping the connection, questioning yourself and your feelings around it. Why does someone not getting a job make you that cross? Why does the fact that they're at their dad's make you that cross? Really answer those why questions. Get rid of your rose-tinted expectations because we just don't know what our children um, are going to be. And acknowledge that it won't be like it was. 
and start to make yourself happy. I think that's my main thing here. Start to make yourself happy and then perhaps the lack of them won't fill such a big hole in your life. I like that. Wise words from Lorraine. I'm just going to add a few thoughts from me. And obviously, we're really sorry that you were poorly, really sorry to hear that you're going through this. I think it's interesting to maybe mention something about ultimatums because... They're never a good idea. We've all probably thought about doing them. They, they don't work. You've got 50% chance of coming out the wrong side of it and uh, not getting what you want. But generally, the reason we make ultimatums is when we feel powerless to change the other person. So it's yes. not a good starting point. We can't change other people. We can only change our reaction to them. But I really think everyone can come out okay in this situation. Yes. If you think about your sons, it's a good thing for them to reestablish, strengthen their relationship with their father. And actually, I'm, I'm thinking a four-worded text, hope you're okay. Not bad, really. <laughs> Just getting a return text is a huge... Everyone should get a medal for that. Well, exactly. So that's, you know, let's look on the positive of that. But obviously, as you were touching on Lorraine, I mean, this is about emptiness, but in a, a sort of a, a way that you weren't prepared for. It came as a shock. You issued an ultimatum and then you got an emptiness. You weren't prepared for it. So I'm not surprised you're feeling vulnerable and lonely, but it is that thing. You need to put the past behind you. You need to put all that behind you and focus on what kind of relationship you want with your sons in the future. And now you have the time, start thinking about yourself, self-care, revisiting old passions, rediscovering new ones. They're all the things we have to do when we hit an empty nest scenario. So um, we wish you well and happy times to come with your sons, no doubt. So this one is also about gratitude, isn't it? We mentioned gratitude before. Kids and gratitude upsets us in so many ways. I think we just want, we just feel like we've put in so much effort for so long and nobody cares. Yes, that's that's kind of this one as well, isn't it? Mm. I like this one. Because I think it will cause a debate. Dear Postcaster in Midlife, I always taught my children to send thank you cards for birthday and Christmas presents, but now I'm a grandma, it seems I'm being old-fashioned or selfish to expect one from my grandchildren. I didn't hear anything on Christmas Day about the present we sent our 11-year-old granddaughter. When I texted her on Boxing Day to see if she liked it, she just said yes and told me about the telly programme she was watching. No thank you. It's been a few weeks and no card has arrived thanking me in the post either. Am I expecting too much to get a card for the gift? It was quite expensive. Or are the days of actual cards dead and gone? Personally, I do think thank you cards have had their day. We live in a modern digital world. I just don't think also that you can dictate gratitude. (laughs) Why not FaceTime your granddaughter and have a little chat with her there? That's clearly where she engages and where you can talk to her and have a connection with her. If you don't have that kind of relationship already, maybe start to develop it. I don't think there is anything to be gained from making children resentfully write thank you cards. You can see the ones where the parents have sort of been stood over them with a a ruler tapping them saying, you must write a thank you card. I just don't think anyone gets anything out of that. Maybe ask your daughter to send a little video of her playing with her present because that might be quite nice as well. And that's sort of saying thank you. We have in our family... My husband's side of the family, they are obsessed with cards. Cards must be sent for everything, which is really lovely. But I think you are struggling, really, in this digital day and age to make sure that everybody is sending a card. I think the idea here is to think of a better way to connect with your granddaughter and to think, I got her a present. She really liked it. 
I'll have a little chat with her about it. I think that's better than a thank you card. Yeah, that is sweet, isn't it? I mean, it's it is. I mean, I was that mum standing behind the children. Oh, it's so painful nagging them to do it. But I do think there is uh, gratitude, being able to show, well, being able to show appreciation when someone does something nice for you is an important life lesson. It's a life skill, I think. So they do need to have that. I think not sending a card is one thing. I was a bit more concerned about the fact that they didn't say thank you when you asked. So, you know, when you actually spoke. So I'm, I'm slightly concerned about that. And I would sort of think, oh, are they, do they say please and thank you in your presence just in general? everyday life it does take kids a bit of a while to get to that hang of that but in terms of presence I've got one family member has a, a bit of an interesting view I remember them saying this once uh, we were talking about thank you cards and they said well it was my choice to send a present I don't expect a thank you so I thought well, okay yeah I can see it from that point of view but I do have to say their children never say thank you either <laughs> it's clearly come down from them I've just sort of given up expecting thank yous, nieces and nephews, send them money. And then when, they, when you see them, they're so lovely, so it doesn't really matter. This is a funny one. You'll like this. I actually got a thank you card a couple of weeks ago for a wedding that I went to in Ireland uh, 15 months ago. Really? Yes. I thought it was like a Royal Mail blooper. I thought, oh, my God, they've probably had this in a you know a cupboard somewhere and they've just found it and they've delivered it. But um, my dad said, no, he got his as well at the same time. So anything goes. Generational as well, I think, isn't it? You yeah. Know. I just think, like, now, do you think we need some people to t- tell us like it is? What do Millie and Marion have to say? Millie Montant, she would be absolutely furious because she's just generally furious about the inequality and unfairness of really? life <laughs> through every subject. Now, she would be thinking, my mum made me do it, so I'm going to make you do it. So other mums should be making you do it. And then she would stop herself and she would think, why aren't dads in charge of this thankless yes. task? I mean, I have four children trying to make four of them write a thank you card. It's quite hard work. So we do know loads of dads who do this, don't we? Oh, no, hold on a minute. We don't know any dads who do this. <laughs> right. Marion Forbes-Mitten. <laughs> We've given her a surname. We like that surname. Marion Forbes-Mitten. Can, can I just say Forbes-Mitten is an actual surname? It is. It was emailed to me. Yeah. Oh, That's okay. why it was one well, of we, like it. we like we it. Like it. Yeah. We like it. We think it goes. Right. So mm, this is heartland passive-aggressive Marion territory, isn't it? Because she's a perfectionist as well. And she would say, why don't you just be smug in the knowledge that you are much better than everyone else and much more thoughtful? And also, how would you ever get any pleasure in life? You couldn't wallow in the bitterness and disappointment that others bring to you and then cut off all communication and never see them again. That's her yeah. approach. Yeah. yeah. There we go. Bonjour, c'est le temps pour nostalgie noodle. Oh, my God. Did anybody understand that? Oh, God, they're switching off in droves. Your French, your French course gives and gives and gives. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Right, nostalgia noodle. Can't believe we're still going with these. It's, it's We've got a lot of them. What have we got? You had a good idea this week. I like this one. Had an idea, both to mention in the post office out loud, obviously, but the Spice Girls stamps are out. Ooh. They are brilliant. I love them. So this is to celebrate 30 years of the Spice Girls. So I had a little look at 1994, Trish. Oh, good year. Yes. And it was a good year for many, many things, but it was a particularly brilliant year for films. Listen to this. Four Weddings and a Funeral, Forrest Gump, Shawshank Redemption, Pulp Fiction, Keanu again, Speed. 
What about that? Wow. All good ones. Really good. Good 30 years ago. Yeah. Yes, I know. It does. It just seems like yesterday to us, doesn't it? 25 we would have been, wouldn't we? Ever done that right? Uh, well, I'd have been, tw- oh, you would have been 25. I'd have been 26. 26. 26. Feels like yesterday. But I've got some um, startling things when I had to little look at what happened in 1994 because I couldn't believe this. It was the year the Channel Tunnel opened. Wow. That's weird, isn't it? Because you just think that's been here forever. Revolutionised our um, careers at the time, didn't it? Because we yes, would go to Paris exactly. for shows three or four times a year and, and uh, have to fly. And then suddenly we were going on a train. I know. That was good. I've got some other shockers. It was still called the Women's Royal Air Force. So there was a Women's Royal Air Force. Yeah. Pink planes, was it? Yes, I think that's probably what it was, yes. So back then, that was they were separate. That seems weird. And then um, some sad things. Kurt Cobain died in 1994. Oh, 94. Yes, it was a big year. Friends started in 1994. And then finally, guess who was born in 1994, just to make us feel really old? One of your favourites, almost up there with Keanu. I would say. Oh, I don't know. What, young young man? You went to see him. You went to see him last year. Not Harry. My Harry. Harry Styles. Harry was born in 1994. Yes. Born in 1994. Oh, and Justin Bieber. But we have nothing to say about that. Well, that's it for this episode of Postcards from Midlife. Join us again next week. Don't forget to subscribe, follow, all of those things. See you next Sunday. Goodbye. Goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustoleum.